Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is M.H. Murray, a writer and director whose first feature, I Don't Know Who You Are, stars Mark Clennon as a Toronto artist who's sexually assaulted and then must spend a harrowing weekend racing around the city trying to raise $900 for a course of treatment to prevent HIV infection. It's a terrific debut, and I'm overjoyed to be introducing its world premiere at TIFF this Thursday, September 7th, at 9.30pm at the TIFF Bell Lightbox, with a second show Friday, September 8th at 10pm. Come and join us. M.H. picked Three Colors Blue, the first film in Krzysztof Kieślowski's brilliant trilogy of dramas inspired by the themes of the French flag, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Blue is about liberation, sort of. Starring Juliette Binoche as Julie, a woman who survives a car wreck that kills her husband and daughter, and wants nothing more than to disappear into her own grief. But life keeps pulling at her, and a series of discoveries will challenge everything Julie thought she knew about her husband in marriage. It's an exquisite character study structured around Binoche's aching, wide-open performance, and the starting point of a trilogy that's one of the finest ever created. If you know, you know. This is someone else's movie. Well, it's my favorite movie, so <laughs> it's a pretty simple answer. It was a big inspiration you know, for me doing my first film and also just as a filmmaker and person, um, I think Blue is so aesthetically interesting, formally interesting, but also I really love the all the characters, but especially the main character and just some of the decisions and the way that she deals with such a traumatic situation, I think is really inspiring and also relatable to me and the way that I might that I have dealt with, you know, things and what you do with life when, you know, it's all like falling apart around you. Um, and, you know, I'm, I really like the idea of, you know, how does a human react or what does a human do when everything is falling down around them? But then the logistics of life continue like, oh, you have to deal with money. You have to deal with your neighbors. You have to do, you can't actually really like fully like you have to if you if you're gonna stay alive you have to engage you know um i think blue is all about like the character kind of wanting trying to retreat away i think there's even a i think she says i can't remember the exact dialogue but she says she basically wants to do nothing be nobody and she can't like she tries but then all these things like come trickling in like her feelings and her past and her future and all these things and and I, I think it's like a sad movie but it's weirdly hopeful sort of in a in a sort of twisted way I think oh I think so I, th I think the thing that Kieslowski is trying to tell us and certainly trying to tell Julie in the course of the film is that life won't let you leave it that yeah. she there is a there's a sort of a cruelty to the way that it's presented right because she's lost her husband she's survived this thing she didn't want to survive because she can't imagine what her future looks like mm -hmm. and every attempt she makes as you say like all her attempts to negate herself fail but it's not because she isn't doing what she it's it's so weird there's there's no sense of blame right like it's not that she's not trying hard enough to isolate herself she could go to a cabin in the woods if she wanted to but that's it doesn't occur to her because it's grief right like she's she's deaf and blind to so many things that are happening and then she tries to sustain that situation and it doesn't work because you can't help but see the world around you and yeah. it is a hopeful film i think yeah she's drawn back to life to the idea of living just by inertia, right? Like right. I, I think it's given the given the other two films in the series. One is about somebody who's trying to reconnect with uh, someone who no longer wants him, and and then Red is just this weird complex tapestry of interaction and how everyone is in some way responsible for the people around them. Starting with Blue, starting from this point, especially at a time I'm I'm thinking about seeing it thirty years ago and realizing like. I had no idea where the other two films were going. There was no context. We didn't even know they, we knew they were coming, but we didn't know they existed yeah. or what they would be oh, like. Yeah. And this singular experience does feel like his thesis statement for his entire cinema, which is that yeah. we need each other even when we don't want to. I love that. I love that. 
I love that. Well, thank you. And I was trying to figure this out. You probably weren't old enough to see it the first time, right? When it was in theater. So what was, <laughs> when did you, when did you come to it? When did you find it? Girl, I was literally born the year it came out. So. Oh dear God. Now I feel old. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like on some weird level, that's why I have such a soft spot for it. Or like when I was, ex I, you know, I like to look at cinema from different years in the past and just kind of see what was going on that year. And there's a lot of crazy stuff happening in 1993. Um, but I think Three Colors Blue, I don't know. It just, it just stands out to me as something so special. And so like, I don't know, like timeless. I feel like the, and I think the score of that movie is literally the best. I don't know. I don't want to be like too dramatic, but I, for me, it's the <laughs> best film score of all time, I think. And I think it's just such a really uh, deceptively simple score in the sense that a lot of the time when you listen to it, there's only a couple things happening. Like maybe one instrument, sometimes it's just a flute. Sometimes it's, you know, a harp or whatever. And, and, and and then sometimes it's an orchestra, but it's not like overly complex. And I think it's within that simplicity that uh, that score just like really shines. Yeah, I was trying to figure it out. Initially, I thought it was her husband reaching out for her somehow that there was some supernatural quality to it. But the more I the more time I spent with it, the more it seems that it really is just the film itself, that it's not. I, I, I guess because of films like Blind Chance or The Double Life of Veronique, I wanted there to be a supernatural component or I was expecting there to be something here that was about a ghost. But she's haunted by herself more than anything else. She's haunted by the, the yeah. things she didn't do and the choices she didn't make and the things she wants to do and, and won't. Yeah. But the film itself feels like it's trying to coax her back to life as though the camera yeah. is making the music somehow. At least that was my last take on it. I think that there is a supernatural element from all three films. Like, I think maybe it's more apparent in Red. Like, there's something kind of, I think, a supernatural, a bunch of stuff happening in Red that is not just, I mean, I don't think my interpretation of it is not like, oh, chance, or just this is just how things happen. I think mm -hmm. there is, like, a reason why. Spoiler alert, they all end up on the same boat or whatever. On the ferry, yeah. Well, so, they, well, they specifically, they survive. They're the ones yeah, who they survive. survive. And, you know, Julie is at the courtroom when, when the, the white, the guy from white is there with his uh, Julie Delpy. Yep. And I think there's such great little connections that I love the, I love thinking about it. I don't have an answer and probably hopefully never will. Cause I like exploring it, but just the juxtaposition of like chance or fate versus just randomness. And I think these films, like one of the main things I get from them is this, like, I don't know, I guess maybe supernatural is not the right word, but the connection of certain people to each other, like, even if it doesn't make logical or logistical sense, like, you know, the old, the elderly woman and when she's walking by and Julie's just on the bench and we're made to feel through the way that it's shot that whether it's a metaphor for like greater society or not, like there's some sort of connection between these two people in this moment that they don't even know about or that we don't really understand, but it's still there. Um, and that's the same thing, kind of like what you're saying with, through the music, her husband is still kind of there and she's still pissed at him. And, you know, through this woman, this pregnant woman, his mistress, she is like able to, connect with him kind of like it's like this super twisted beautiful thing um that to me does i feel like you know it is a little bit magical in a way yeah well and i guess continuity like the concept of continuity that that mm -hmm. patrice is gone and their child is gone but there is a woman carrying his child and that's yeah. not insignificant Mm -hmm. Right. Even though it is something that she should, that, that Julie should be horrified by and, and angered by, um, mm. the context of the discovery changes everything and means that it's somehow positive, that there is that there is continuation of, of the person that she lost. And 
I, I mean, I was 25 when I saw it, and I remember sitting in a tiny screening room that's no longer there underneath what I think is now a pottery barn on, on uh, Bloor Street uh, at wow. the old famous player screening room, which is where they showed us all the Alliance films. Like all the Miramax movies were screened in this dinky little space, a 30-room screen, and just being – it didn't matter. Like it didn't matter that the screen was small and the speakers were tinny. It, it was just transporting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And – I think actually the way I remember it, this probably isn't true, but the way I remember it, we saw it in this dinky screening room at 10 a.m. in August before the film festival. And then I saw it again, maybe three weeks later in a proper theater and watched it play the crowd because I knew what was going to happen. Even if I didn't remember it, you know, with perfect accuracy, your brain, the second time you see any movie, your brain is already kind of prepped in some way. And I could just feel the audience responding to it and the colors were deeper and the sound was definitely, the sound was definitely better. I remember that, but the, 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 the color blue was so much more intense on a big screen with a fresh bulb. And it it felt like watching a different film entirely because my my connection to it was through the audience figuring it out. And I just sort of rode it. I rode the wave of it. And it's such a, such a strange feeling. And I, I didn't get to see white theatrically. I had to catch up with that on video. And then I saw red later as well. And it was the, this one moment where it's like, oh, something really special is starting here, but it isn't over. Mm-hmm. And to go out afterwards, to leave the, the theater with like 300 people who are all trying to figure out if it was hopeful or not and debating yeah. it and arguing it. And it's just like, this is so his thing. Um, mm-hmm. Just to leave people. Yeah, what was the general reaction? Because I've seen it in a cinema a couple times, and I'm always intrigued how, like, sometimes there's a lot more like funny moments sometimes mm-hmm. depending on the crowd, or like it, it can really vary depending on the crowd how people react to it. So I'm curious. It was very reverent. Everybody received mm-hmm. it very seriously, mm-hmm. um, but they they kind of swooned for it. Mm. Right, like it's it is a rapturous film more so than yeah. the other two. It's it's the one where you're really just left alone to, it, you're left alone in the art to appreciate what's happening and to like just to observe Juliet Binoche and think, oh, okay, I've underestimated her, and I already thought she was great, but to see her in this, it's just like, no, no, she's better than you think she is. She's actually kind of the only person who could play this part. And there's that thing that Kislowski does where he names the character for her, so it just makes that connection mm. in your mind as well that no one else can do it but she's so good and she's so unfussy about disappearing right like mm. playing negation playing playing an attempt to remove yourself i don't know how you find your way into that other than stillness and she that's not what she does like she mm-hmm. finds a way to be active in in silence uh, even when like she swims at one point, she swims in an irritated fashion and it's amazing. She just like <laughs> someone has bothered her and you can feel it. She does. Yeah, she does. And I mean, I can't imagine anyone underestimating Juliette Binoche because to me, she's like the greatest. I think she's one of the greatest ever. But in this movie, yeah, like, I love what you said about the stillness because I feel like even though there are a lot of moments where she is physically in her body still, like when mm. she's sitting at the cafe or when she's looking at the uh, ornament, the light fixture ornament, or when she's holding the candy or whatever. But in all those moments, she's always like trembling or her eyes are darting around or or something is happening that is making you feel like, okay, even though she's physically still, she's mentally doing a lot. Like there's a lot going on mentally that we can't fully understand, but that we're like slowly discovering. Yeah. She's so intensely present. Mm-hmm. And that also works for the story, right? I mean, it's clearly a choice because this isn't someone who's going to just walk away or disappear. She's not going to be able to, no matter how much she wants to. Uh, I mean, it's just even the, the scene with the sleeping pills where she's just incapable of doing it mm-hmm. is so, it's a throwaway moment, but it's so crucial to mm-hmm. understanding everything else that happens is that this is someone who, and she doesn't want to be dead. She doesn't want to be yeah. gone. She just wants to stop feeling, which is different, right? In so many ways. And it's something that she can't even understand herself until she starts understanding what she's feeling. Yeah, I think she thinks she wants to stop feeling grief or pain 
or like you said, she wants to stop feeling everything, but then she realizes that she doesn't want to stop feeling everything. She just wants to stop feeling certain things. And I do think that scene with the pills is super important because, yeah, it is a choice in many ways for some people to live, you know? And I think when you make that choice to keep living, it's a very powerful choice and it's a choice that is difficult sometimes for people. And I think in that scene, she is making that choice for so many different reasons. And I think one of them is that, I mean, I don't know how you interpret it with, and I don't know how much plot details we're supposed to give away, but. It's a 30 year old film, go wherever you want to go. Exactly, I'm like, okay, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, But the whole kind of storyline about, oh, is she the one who's behind, you know, her husband's pieces? Is she like the secret genius behind everything or not? I think it's implied by one of the reporters and like kind of the way she seems like really angsty towards not just the fact that, you know, her husband is cheating on her, but that the fact, but the fact something regarding the music is frustrating her, you know, she Mm -hmm. she doesn't want people to see it. It's not finished. It's not right. And this new guy is trying to finish it, but he's not doing it right. And she needs, she wants to make sure it's right, which to me signifies, I relate to that so much as an artist. We're like, no, 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 no. It has, it has to be this, but everybody as an artist has a different, you know, perception and the man who I can never remember his name, but uh, the man who tries, who's like tasked with um, completing the score. And at the end, he's like, you know, I have to just do my own version. I have to do it myself. Um, but I think part of the reason to take it back to that pill scene, I feel like there's a part of her who feels like she hasn't really gotten recognition or that she hasn't really gotten the the artistic, not validation, but like more of like a personal recognition or like catharsis that she's been seeking and that maybe she was hoping to find more of down the line with her husband or by herself. And I think it was, it seems to me like she was on the precipice of something or as a couple, as a family, they were on the precipice of something very large with him working on this big, you know, national project and things like that. And so for everything to be taken from you at a moment where right before it, it seems like you're about to have a breakthrough. I think that plays a role in her kind of being kind of not able to fully let go because she's like there's still I still have things to kind of do that I wanted to do that I haven't been able to do it's not like the hope is still kind of there you know and I think that's really inspiring and really cool yeah an unfinished symphony is also sort of the perfect metaphor Mm -hmm. right for life and how the one lady saves it like how she tries to get like I love that whole play of like oh my god you can literally destroy because everything is so digital now um but even I guess you know, things that are digital can still be, you know, lost or destroyed. But True. but there's a, there's a visceralness to like seeing her th- throw out the music, and it's like seeing music on a piece of paper is so uh, interesting, and it's like not it's very unusual now, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so I love the idea of like oh, someone sneakily preserving an art piece because they have this feeling that it needs to be heard or seen, you know, because so many artists. And I know so many great writers and people who just write stuff, beautiful things, things that writers would kill to write and share, but they just are like, oh, I'm just going to keep it locked away. Ooh, it's not for anyone but me. <laughs> and I think that's so perplexing and interesting. And the fact that Julie is kind of in that moment where she's like, there's been so much work put into this, but I don't want anyone to see it. I don't care how good it is. But that the world kind of is like, oh, no, you don't get to decide it's not yours anymore because once you make something as an artist, it becomes this weird conundrum where you're like, Oh shit. In the, the process is great. You're making it. You're like, yes, I'm making something. And then once it's made, you're like, Oh my God, I don't, it's not mine anymore. It's like taken from you in a weird way. Um, that can be really exciting and empowering, but that can also be terrifying, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, especially now, right now where we're in a space where art means whatever people insists it means rather than what the artist intended, depiction versus endorsement and all of that stuff. Right. It's, um, it strikes me as so weirdly perfect uh, and awful, but weirdly perfect that Kishlowski died before the digital age, that he is like a a uniquely analog filmmaker to the point that the Decalogue looks like crap because it was shot on video. Like it was shot on low definition, not even (laughs) SD. It was like no D um, video. And (laughs) he leaves with these three exquisitely photographed, beautiful pieces of cinema, which are photochemical, like they're pure analog. And they're about things 
on paper, like, uh, like even the marriage certificate and divorce certificate that, that white revolves around or the files in the, in the lawyer, in the philosopher's home in, in red, these films can't be remade, right? There's, they're, they're future proofed. They, they have to stay where they are. Yeah. 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 I honestly, I kind of love when things, I mean, I don't need, I, I'm not a big fan of like 4K or like any of this stuff where like, okay, we don't need to see so much. I feel mm-hmm. like we see so much in real life. You know, I, I think cinema should have a little bit of a, a distinction or like some sort of separation between complete real life and, you know, what you're seeing on screen. So sometimes when I when it's too real, it's just like a little bit jarring. And I think these movies are a great example of movies that feel so human and so emotional and so many senses are being, you know, affected by them, but they are not real life. They're like, a, they're a dream of real life. They're a memory of real life. You know? They're aestheticized. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're made better by being mm-hmm. constructed, by being crafted. Mm-hmm. No more so than, again, I kept coming back to that swimming pool scene because it was, like, there's a reason that was the, the, the still that went around the world for the movie. It's just so perfect and stark. Somebody completely oh. isolated by lighting and, and yeah. color gels. But if you're making these movies the way he wanted to make them, you have to make them unrealistic. Even though they're dealing with the most human and basic and recognizable emotions, they have to be just a little too good, a little too beautiful, a little too stylish. That said, I do own them in 4K now, and they are gorgeous. <laughs> I'm sure they are. But, you know, even if you watch them in 4K on a bigger screen, you know, it's, it's of course, it's beautiful. There's a reason why we do it. But I'm just like a little bit, I guess, I don't know. I'm a little bit nasty, some of the modern. I'm like, ugh, like, I don't have an Apple Watch. I'm like avoiding the, you know, trying to, Yeah. <laughs> it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. This week, I wrote about the manic pixie dream characters that connect Roman Holiday, Weird Science, and The Flash, and I've got a piece coming up about the Walter Hill and Gene Hackman box sets from Australia's Via Vision. They're remarkable. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. It is this weird new thing, right? Where we're, we're able to have things in a moment's, like at a moment's notice, you can stream most of the canon. You can get books in a second. You can get albums for nothing. And it's all tied into this thing right now where people are beginning to realize that that's based on the exploitation of the artists who signed the rights away. And Yeah, it doesn't actually make sense logically. No, we're it's... losing all the rituals, like all the little rituals of life you know, are being just like washed away by just okay, other things like things that aren't, yeah. yeah, like convenience or just yeah. And I think I love, I mean, we can get into it later, but like I love the idea of hands and things that are handmade and things that you have to you have to use your hands to do beyond just like clicking, you know, like clicking buttons or typing. Um, and I think these movies to me, oh, especially, I think all three of them, but Three Colors Blue, it, even though it is so elegant and, and you know, beautifully done, it does feel very like, I guess that's kind of what you're getting at, but it's like a, it feels like handcrafted. It feels like it was put together like by hand. It wasn't done by like, you know, a bunch of machines or something. Yeah. And I think that's really special. I agree. I think the only... It, I mean, I'm sure it is possible to make art with CG. I know I've seen animated films that are absolutely mm-hmm. glorious. Yeah. But at the same time, you know that it's pixels, right? Like you can you can admire the artistry without necessarily connecting to the emotion. Or if you're really lucky, you can. You can get there. But sometimes it really is just the simplest thing to point the camera at someone who is one of the greatest actors of her generation and just let it happen. And you you have to write it, you have to direct it, you have to set all these things up. But as you say, it's people doing that in a room or a soundstage or 
a driveway and, and making these things happen. And it's very human driven. Like it's very like her face, you know, oh, yeah. I think I love faces. Like the human face is so cool. And I love how it looks so different, depending how the light hits it or where it is or what the person is feeling. And I think in this film, it's just a, such a great showcase for her face and all the things that she can do with it. And speaking to the animation thing, I think that's why I'm so drawn to like Scooby-Doo or like older cartoons, because like you can see some of them, not mistakes, I guess, but like you can see the hand, the craftsmanship, you know, in the image, or you can see that it was like drawn. Um, and I'm it just, it's like, gives me this weird like comfort or something. I don't know, maybe it's like nostalgia, but I, I think it's important. I think feeling the human hand at work in these things does matter, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm thinking about Ardman animations and how they'll leave the thumbprints in the plasticine. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes it's just the best shot they got, but then they realize this is actually the signature. This is how you know it was mm -hmm. made by people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a scary notion that we have to question and wonder that now. Uh-oh, was it made by people? <laughs> like, what the hell? Well, how many oh. fingers do the actors have? That's usually the giveaway for me. If they've got yeah, like an I mean, extra thumb or something. That's not, that's going to be resolved eventually. That's not, they're going to figure that out. But, you know, listen, if I was in charge and I don't know if this is controversial, but if I was in charge of, of the art. world, yeah. art, I, I would literally just outlaw whatever this whole AI, like whatever this is that's happening. Like I don't see the um, pros versus cons of it. I feel like the cons are so much higher than the pros. I'm like, th there's so many bigger problems in the world right now but it's, it's just like come on like do we really who is i just like who is doing this i picture like the uh team from like blackberry or something just a bunch of dudes just like huddled in a room like figuring stuff out and i feel like someone just needs to go in there and be like guys let's go outside like let's do something else please yeah i still i get it like i get the appeal to people who don't think past the it can do this uh -huh. um, and who haven't seen Terminator, but the, the, the larger yeah. idea and like Terminator, Terminator got it wrong. Skynet's not going to destroy humanity. It's just not going to do anything. The, yeah. the thing about oh, yeah. AI is that it doesn't answer questions with information. So I wish I could remember who put this out because it's such a beautiful sentiment. It doesn't answer a question with information. It answers a question with authority. So it makes it sound mm -hmm. like it's saying something that can't be challenged, that is perfectly factually accurate. But what it's really saying, and of course, you know, bananas are made from people. Like it doesn't actually make sense. It's just giving you what it thinks you want to hear in an authoritative fashion. So you don't question it. And AI doesn't create, like it gives you an impression of something. I, uh, Cronenberg, David Cronenberg got this right in 1986 in The Fly. Uh, there's that scene where Jeff Goldblum is talking about teleporting a steak and how the computer doesn't know how a steak tastes or what it's supposed to do. He yeah, says yeah. the computer's giving you its impression of a steak. And it's like, that's a really oh, good yeah. line. And then in the yeah. same movie, Goldblum throws this line away with somebody, uh, Gina Davis, of course it's Gina Davis, they're the only two people in the movie for the first half hour. But she asks him something at some point and, and he just, his response is computers are dumb. They only know what you tell them. And that's exactly. it. That's, that's it. Okay. Exactly. That's what I, that's, I, uh, I love that. First of all, I love that movie. Second of all, that's the thing that I think a lot of, I myself have got caught up in the fear mongering as well, obviously, but like, I think it is important that we do kind of remember at the end of the day, it, uh, everything that th these things know is given to them by us. You know, it's, it is created by us still at this point, at least, you know, oh, yeah. like, I robot yet, but like one day, maybe, hopefully not. Hopefully yeah. I'll be long gone by then, but <laughs> yeah, everybody's like, oh, 2001. It's like, that's an actor reading lines, guys. You know that, right? Like Hal's mm -hmm. not a person. Well, he is a person. He's not a real creature. It's mm -hmm. a, a device in cinema that then goes on to shape people's minds for 50 odd years. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, think about, I think about the great joke of Star Trek influencing technology because the writers and directors were trying to come up with absurd ideas that were sort of based on real concepts like the communicator, which is just a walkie talkie, yeah. but they needed to make it not a walkie talkie. So they made the thing that you flip up and then flip phones take off in the nineties because a generation of engineers raised on Star Trek. It's like, oh, we can do this if we just try. We're okay. never going to get to the point where the computer calls you darling and asks what you want for lunch, unless you specifically program it to do that. I, mm -hmm. I don't, neural networks are, again, it's James Cameron saying, what is the scariest thing I can imagine? And then some people going, I could build that. <laughs> i know why are we like this humans <laughs> can be so annoying like it's like we don't need to do everything we're like we need if we, 
we see it, we can try it, you know, we see it, we can, sometimes it's good, but I think that it's very our nature as humans to like, almost like when you see something, you're like, oh, it's like when you're a kid and they're like, don't go in there. And you're like, mm, yeah, I bet I I'm could. Good. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think we need to do a lot of more like internal, not necessarily navel gazing, but like we have, we have a lot of other stuff to deal with. A lot of the stories that could be told with just hands and people and, you know, we don't, we don't need to be, we can make our own schedules. Like we don't need a computer to make it for us. Like, I don't know. Like, I know that it's not fun, but like, I understand people liking it for the, for the benefits of a menial task and stuff, but it's like, it's giving Wally, like it's, it's where that's what we're going to, that's where it's going. Yeah. Like that's not what we want to be really. I don't think. No, the worst case scenario has become prophecy because somebody thinks they're cool Oh gosh. Not helping anybody. But, but the, I keep trying, I've been trying to figure out how to bring this back to three colors is like, is there an AI joke in there about, you know, like what would the AI do with three colors blue? And she'd probably just be able to take the pills because it wouldn't understand the value of living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like the film is just so beautifully devoid of that kind of like, I don't know, like bullshit, you know, like it's just so, it's just so not about that. And even though when you do see technology, like when she's watching, the funeral on I don't even remember what she's watching it on it's just a broadcast isn't it like yeah. a video I, I feel like she's watching like a smaller device of some sort um because I don't think she's like she's like laying in bed under a sheet watching it isn't she it's, maybe she's watching a little tiny tv or something it must be it's, it's 1993 they even have anything else. super blurry image it's very like green it's like okay this is not this it's something that feels you know like it's separate from her it's not her, like, you know, filming herself or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if there's another AI joke in there, but... Yeah, it's fine. Ponder it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, White kind of feels like it's been written by something that's designed to torment the, this poor guy, Carol Carroll. But that's... Aww, yeah, it does. I mean, listen, the, he was definitely not giving his characters, you know, a good time. Like, they were going <laughs> through all of them. But in the end, I think it's a beautiful ending. They all get there. They all have these like you know little beautiful moments along the way. But I mean, they're going through it. This guy's in white. He's getting carried around in a suitcase. Yeah. Like he's getting you know embarrassed. But in the end, he does kind of weirdly succeed in a weird way. You know. So. Yeah, his force of will is strong enough that it gives him the world he wants, or it gives him the the life he wants, sort of, or what he thinks he wants. I feel like you can tell that he likes his characters. Like he loves his characters. Kishlasky. Oh yeah. Yeah, and he 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 doesn't necessarily. He wants to, like, okay. Every story needs the character. Need there's no story or drama that exists without the character going through something. You know, some sort of traumatic event or something. But I think it's all about what you do with the character afterwards, and how, and how you end it, and where you take it. And I feel like he always does kind of. He doesn't just like torture the characters for no reason. Like, or he doesn't have like an animosity for his characters, which I think some directors just hate their characters and they're just trying to just, you know, and I think these, these movies, that's, that's the hopefulness that I really relate to. And I, I like to be, you know, I like to have, I like to see drama. I like to, you know, I feel like life, at least for me is so dramatic and there's so much melodrama. And I think three colors blue, like show like the way that the blue is brought in in those certain moments where she's getting lost, the, the way that they shoot the pool, like everything is so, the music at times, it's like, I think in my mind that it's like her experience of, you know, everything feels so heightened, you know? And I think that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's funny when you were saying he loves all, he cares about his characters. I was thinking of the other confusion in my mind, which is that I've always thought that blue is the closest that Kishlowski ever came to Michael Haneke, where, mm. you know, his, his aesthetic is, is perfect, but he is rooting for failure. And, and blue isn't blue is ambivalent at best about that. And until it ultimately embraces her, I think it wants you to, to worry about Julie until mm -hmm. it embraces her cinematically. But the, the, the difference is so striking between those two points of view. And I think it must've been cause I just seen Benny's video, which is one of the most horrific and, and un, unwelcoming, unpleasant experiences I've ever had in a, in a screening room. <laughs> and, uh, and then to see blue is just like, oh, these are, these guys are coming from kind of the same artistic discipline, the same roots yeah. similarly, 
but one is about hope and one is about nothing, like just about, <laughs> about the void. Um, Haneke, and he's a, like, I won't argue he's not an artist, but he definitely only goes in one direction. He doesn't make hopeful films. He's definitely an artist. And I think every artist has their own, you know, thing that they want to say, their own experience. And I think everybody's art is valid to a certain degree. Um, but sure, I, think, sure. I think it also depends on what you're doing as a filmmaker and like what forms you're using, what genres and images and ideas you're using. And I think there's a difference between making a horror movie where characters are like being killed brutally. And like, it's, you know, that I think that's way different than making a drama or a historical film or some sort of, movie that is not a genre film and the characters are you know not experiencing any kind there's no like peaks and valleys it's all just a bunch of bullshit then yeah. i think that that's frustrating as a viewer because you're like why am i watching this like yeah i i feel that way about funny games it's like you don't need me um, <laughs> it's like this is going perfectly well i'm gonna but I do think that movie has merit in its own <laughs> in its own way, you know. But oh no, it's a fascinating <laughs> experiment, right? To see how the audience will respond to being denied mm -hmm. all the things you're supposed to get from a movie like this. I mean, how? Yeah, but it's like, is that really a mystery? I mean, I don't think that that's a big question. Like, I feel like humans don't like that feeling, you know. So yeah, but everybody stays to the end, right? Like that was his whole thing. Yeah. It's like if the audience leaves, I if the audience stays in their seats, I failed. And it's like, but they're going to stay in their seats because it's a movie. Like there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what people want from Is cinema. That what you said? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Well, listen, everybody has their own intentions and I don't know, that's definitely not my intention, but I do think there is some sort of value in like, I mean, you know, like John Waters kind of more like uh, shock stuff, but I, mm -hmm. I don't even think that's really what, it, like is he trying to shock or is he just i don't know it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting thing yeah. i'm interested by the, like how you connect those two filmmakers i think it was um, literally that i saw the movies within hours right. of each other well no that can't be right the other crazy thing is it's your own like the viewer's experience is like the viewer is such a big part of a film like a film's life like you could watch you could watch a movie as beautiful as three colors blue but you have a stomach ache or you just got dumped and you're just like Ugh, this movie sucks but then if you watch it when you're feeling really good, you're like, ooh. So you just like hope that people, as a filmmaker, you just hope people will be feeling good when they see your movie. The thing that I, and I always come back to this, the thing that I love about cinema more than any other art form is that every single person responds to the same thing in different ways. In, in yeah. It's scary as a filmmaker though. You're like, oh my God. Okay, but you just have to, I, you literally, what I'm learning is that you have to just let it go. You have to just allow people to just have their own feelings and thoughts. And it doesn't necessarily really need to affect the way you see yourself or your project. Oh, um, no, no, no. Yeah. But once it's out in the world, yeah, it belongs to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Such a twisted, messed up thing that we do as artists. Like, why do we do this to ourselves? I don't know. You know, I think it's ultimately worth it. But sometimes I definitely question my own sanity. And I'm like, why am I myself through this um but yeah i've always i'm so used to it's so interesting like making a feature film because i'm from like the internet web series world and like i used i used to be able to film my show edit it put it together and then release it like weeks later and get just like instant you know hundreds of people just being like this is what i think and most of it was positive so it's like i'm so used to just getting really quick feedback mm -hmm. that it's been such an intense experience to make, take so long to make something. And then also once you're kind of done, it takes so long to figure out, okay, where does it go? And then once you figure out where it's going to go, you know, wait to see, wait for that to happen. And then, you know, there's just so many different layers to it when you're doing a bigger project. Um, and so I think all that time, it, it allows for a filmmaker to do some rumination and, you know, got to get better at not, not doing that. I don't know. I think the rumination is essential, isn't it? I mean, you, just to it's figure out what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing when to stop is probably just as important. Yeah. Because life is so fun when you're not overthinking things. Like delusion is so important. Again, <laughs> but I've found that like, you know, being a little bit delusional and just, it, it's really helpful. It is. I can see that as a survival tactic. 
Well, listen, even as a filmmaker, it's like, okay, there's literally billions of people in this world. Why the hell is my story more important than anyone else's? Why do I get to tell a story and no one, these other people don't? And so I think that's like a weird thing that you have to, you have to consider as an artist where you're like, okay, listen, I, you have to acknowledge, okay, if I do have the tools around me to make something and the people out there who are willing to watch it or engage with it, that's a huge privilege. And, you know, but you still have to be like, it's like to believe that your story is important is in a, in a way a bit of delusion because like so many people don't are too busy. They don't care. But I think if you can really believe in it, then it makes people care because then it's like, okay, this person really believes what they're doing, even if everything is telling them, you know, what the, why are you doing this? Making a film doesn't make sense logically. Like when you're making it, you're trying to like pretend the world is not happening outside, but it is, you know? And like, even in my film, I, with the sound design and some of the images, I was like, okay, I want to make sure we're always kind of hearing, like living in the city, especially, I feel like you're always kind of hearing stuff made aware on some level that you're not alone and that other people are doing stuff that doesn't concern you and that they are completely unaffected by what you're doing. Yeah. Even though you're, you might be having the most traumatic day of your life, some ladies on the streetcar being like, girl, I'm going to go home, eat dinner, and I'm going to go to sleep. <laughs> and she doesn't even know who you are. And so, yeah, I think that's an interesting, interesting conundrum as a filmmaker. But I think the right balance of like, belief in yourself and also, you know, being practical is important. You need both. Yeah. I mean, you just summed up both your movie and Blue, which are both about people <laughs> experiencing. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Nicely done. But but they're both experiencing these profound, life-changing, trajectory-altering moments in isolation, even though they're surrounded by people. And, and in Blue, she chooses to be isolated. And in I Don't Know Who You Are... And again, I'll set this up in the intro a little bit. Benjamin doesn't know any other way but to try to do this on his own. Like he's mm -hmm. incapable of accepting help, whereas Julie is actively refusing it. But that's sort of an interesting. Before we started recording, I, I said that there's this this sense of entanglement with your film and, and with Blue, where they're just sort of playing on the same ideas, but but yours right. is doing it in an incredibly anxious, agitated form <laughs> of drama where. The stakes are literally life and death, potentially mm -hmm. anyway, and we're powerless to affect the outcome. We just have to just hang on and hope that within this the, the given time frame, things will find a way to work. And watching someone just defeat himself over and over again because he has too much pride or doesn't know how to get past himself or can't express what he needs to people, or when he does need it, it's misinterpreted. It's just... It's excruciating, yeah. but it's but it's purgative. It felt like the ending feels incredible. You just come out the other mm -hmm. end. It's like the I you know I, I've called it the Toronto version of an uncut gems movie where you're just watching somebody spiral, mm -hmm. and the film just keeps going down with them, and just the like the free fall sense of it, especially in the second act where you're just hurtling along through through desperation. It's it's amazing. It's completely the opposite of the mood of, of Three Colors Blue, but the Ultimately, I think the the feeling is the same. Like the emotion yeah. is the thing I recognized. I think in both like Julie and Benjamin, like they're both getting worn down. You know, like they both experience a traumatic event. And then afterwards, they're both trying to, to different extents, hide or not engage. And I think with Benjamin, you know, he kind of is forced in the same way that Julie is to like accept that there's other people in his life, whether he likes it or not, like his friend's gonna try to help him, he has to go to the doctor, he has parents, he has a friend, another friend who he's supposed to perform with, he has he has students, he has, he has responsibilities. He has to wash the dishes, girl. Like the whole thing is like, what, what do you do when your life is falling down around you and oh, the dishes are dirty, you know? Yeah. Like that's like, important and essential to being a, you know, real human being can be so much more complex and difficult to accomplish when you're going through this like mental anguish. And I think he starts to accept more help as he's going along. And then in a weird way, he starts to be trying to, you know, ultimately he, you know, does everything that he can to try to get help. And he tries to do the right thing at first. And what's interesting, I think, is that he tries to do the right thing at first. And then ultimately he has to try to do things that he wouldn't normally do 
Whereas with Julie, she starts off by doing things she wouldn't normally do. And then she kind of ends up doing the right thing in the end, you know? And I think that's an interesting, like almost opposite journey, but it's like a similar journey. Um, and yeah, I mean, certainly, like I said, this Three Colors Blue is my favorite movie, or at least one of my favorites. And it's obviously an inspiration to me. It's, it is a different story, but, but when a movie is so, when you've seen a movie so many times and when you love it so much, it's hard for it not to have just an effect on everything you do. You know, I think sure. that someone, I think someone would be lying if they say like, oh, you can, I love this piece of work, but it has zero effect on, on what I do in my life. You know, like, I don't think that separation is fully possible because the whole point of cinema is how much it deeply affects a person when you watch something on a screen like that. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I don't have a comeback. I, it's a good thesis. <laughs> it's a good thesis. Um, is there, this is the weird question in, in this context, is there anything in Three Colors Blue that you deliberately borrowed or lifted or like just sort of homaged or even outright stole for your own, for your own work? Not necessarily in, in I don't know who you are, but, but anywhere. Um, yeah, certainly. And, and I don't know who you are. Like I definitely, you know, the whole concept and I don't know who you are of him and it doesn't really give any plot away, but him, you know, out of frustration, breaking that, uh, blue wine glass. Oh, and then yeah. later, you know, I really wanted to show an artist, like I was talking about earlier, an artist making something that's not for consumption, that they just make it, it's beautiful, but it's just for them. Mm -hmm. And I think, he's about to go do this big performance that's going to be for other people in this moment where he's, you know, he has all these broken pieces of glass. He makes it into like an ornament. And I think that ornament, the idea of that ornament even being possible was definitely inspired by the ornament in three colors blue that she looks at um, to a smaller and a smaller, more scrappy level, obviously. Um, but I think that feeling that she has when she looks at the ornament is a different feeling but it is a feeling of memory being sparked by something. Like when she looks at that, I think my interpretation is when Julie looks at the blue jewels or gems or whatever they are, pieces of glass, she remembers her kid and she remembers her life before. And I think when Benjamin looks at the shards of glass that he broke and now there's something beautiful, it gives him that it rem reminds him of life before his traumatic event and all the hope that he had and all the beauty, you know, and then that helps him to get back to that place, you know, even though he doesn't have a full, you know, conclusion or a real resolution to some of his problems in the end, which I think we never, no one ever does. Like everyone always, there's always something, you know, and but I think he's still able to get to that place through, you know, an object or using his hands to create something that brings him a feeling, you know, that's like what art is. Um, and Benjamin is an artist. Like you can see in his apartment, there's like, his artwork is everywhere. And when you're an artist, I think making art is a job and it is something you do for public consumption, but it also is just something like breathing or drinking water. It's like, you have to like do things, at least for me, it's that way. And I think it's a, that way for most people. Like there's a, there's a need that you have and, and making art is, is, is something that makes you feel better. Like it makes you feel good to do it. I was just saying the other day, like the reason I started making movies when I was much younger was not because I was like, I'm going to be the next Spielberg or something. It was just because it was fun. And it made me, and I got, I had such a good time doing it, you know? And so I tried to always hold on to that feeling despite the realities of the profession. But. Yeah, I hear that a lot. That it's the thing that you love doing, and and that brings us back to the whole exploitation of labor and things, where it's like, well, you're not really, it's not really work if you're enjoying yourself. It's like that's horseshit. No, that's bullshit. I mean, listen, the truth is, our whole society is only exists because there's amazing people who do do jobs every day that they don't particularly like or enjoy. And so that is an important part of our society. And I do understand sometimes where people are coming from, who people who do are working class and people who work have to work regular jobs and they don't have a choice. They don't get to experience some of the like, you know, catharsis or things that artists always talk about experiencing. Hmm. 
I understand some of the like anger that they would have, but I think it is misplaced. And I think at the end of the day, yes, like I said, art is a job, you know, it just so happens to, there's a reason why so many people want to do it. It's such a great job. You know, some jobs are more fun than others, but they're all important. You know, all the jobs are important in different ways. Um, and I, I think it's unfortunate when people are like, oh, these stupid actors or these stupid writers, like they don't, they don't deserve more or something, but it's like, okay, what do you do in the evening? What do you do all day? Are you listening to music? Are you watching a show? Are you reading the newspaper? Like, are you, what are you doing? Like, there's no way to exist in life, especially if you're working a shitty job, you're looking for some sort of escapism. This, this is what artists provide. It's such an important part of society. And yeah, so I hope that shit is resolved. Sorry, pardon my language. <laughs> it's totally fine. But yeah, I hope it's resolved soon. And I hope that I think I really do think that this that people underestimated how much the public with social media does understand the plight of these artists and does is starting to understand it more when they're like, oh, what the hell? Like you see things like oranges, people from Orange is the New Black are these giant shows that so many millions of people watch and they know in their mind it's this huge show and all these people should be rich for being on this show. That's what people think. People yeah. think when you're on a TV show that's this popular, you you should get some sort of big, you know, you should be paid well. And to find out they're getting checks for like 37 cents or whatever, it's like, it's pretty messed up. It's pretty jarring. And I think anybody can relate to that, whether you're an artist or not. Like getting a check for 37 cents? What? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. even... I mean, like, I would have... I would have warned the producers before this even started. It's like, don't go up against the writers. They're funnier than you. They're going to find a way to connect. <laughs> Especially with Twitter or X, I guess we should say. Yeah, never. But I feel like people underestimate Twitter. Like, you know, you can, and like all the signs that they have, like it's effective. Like, I think it's been an effective campaign. It's just insane to me that it's lasted this long. It seems so obvious what the outcome should be. My thanks to M.H. Murray, whose first feature, I Don't Know Who You Are, premieres this Thursday, September 7th at TIFF at 9.30 p.m. at the TIFF Bell Lightbox, specifically. There's a second show, Friday, September 8th at 10 p.m. Tickets are still available for both at tiff.net slash festival. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find M.H. on Twitter at Yarumim, which is M.H. Murray spelled backwards, Y-A-R-R-U-M-H-M, and you can find Three Colors Blue on 4K and Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection in the excellent Three Colors Trilogy box set. It's also streaming in the U.S. on the Criterion Channel and Max, and available to rent or buy on various VOD services. In Canada, you have to buy the discs, but they're worth it. You can find me on Twitter for a little while longer, at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com semcast, that's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week. <laughs>